The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Herbs have been around forever, but how well do you understand them? In this episode, we have a conversation with Kim Roman. She shares her expertise derived from her forthcoming book, Growing Herbs for Health, Wellness, Cooking, and Crafts. We talk about various topics concerning growing, using, and appreciating herbs. How do you distinguish between culinary herbs and medicinal herbs? We'll talk about it. We'll also look into the overlapping roles of herbs and spices. Why it's important to know and understand botanical names when it comes to herbs. We'll also discover keys to successfully growing herbs, turning herbs into elegant and practical crafts, creating herb oil, mocktails, and understanding tazans. We also touch on the role of an herbalist, maintaining and promoting wellness with herbs, and common and unique uses for herbs in cooking and garnishing. This is episode 146, Growing Herbs for Health, Wellness, Cooking, and Crafts, with Kim Roman. Kim, I get a little confused when talking about culinary herbs versus medicinal herbs. Would you straighten me out on that? I had really wanted a medicinal herb garden, and I never had the space to do that. But I read an article from PubMed.gov, and the name of the article is Health Benefits of Culinary Herbs and Spices. It went on to say, herbs and spices not only enhance the flavor of foods, but can protect from acute and chronic diseases. All of a sudden, the light went off in my head, and I said, I don't need to use medicinal herbs. I can use culinary herbs. There's a lot of overlap. You can eat some medicinal herbs, and you can use, obviously, culinary herbs for medicine. Medicinal plants have usually been studied and show promise in therapeutic applications. So they've been studied more for health and wellness in the body than culinary herbs. So we've got the culinary and medicinal, but then we throw in spices. How does that fit into the equation? Spices and herbs in general, a lot of times come from the same plants, but they might be different parts of the plants. There is a big debate on what's an herb and what's a spice, but the definition I'm going to go with is the leaves of the plant would be herbs, and anything else, the bark, roots, or other parts of the plant would be a spice. For instance, let's just say really quickly, Cilantro. Cilantro is an herb, but when you use the seeds, the dried seeds of that, it becomes coriander. Coriander is considered a spice that we use in cooking. 
how important is it to know exactly what plant we're using? Do we just rely on the common names or botanical names important? That is important. I'm a vegetable gardener primarily. And when I grow a vegetable, I don't care what the botanical name is or the Latin name, the scientific name or binomial. I don't care about that. But when we are talking about herbs, you have to be extremely specific. For instance, the family salvia. If it is an edible salvia here in America, we use the word sage. That sounds great. Okay, so anything called sage we can eat, except for Russian sage, which is not in the salvia family. It is not at all edible, but it has the word sage in it. Then there's sagebrush. Sagebrush, of course, can be eaten in small doses, but it's not a salvia. You have to be very specific so that you know exactly what you're getting. What are some of the key elements in being successful in growing herbs? In general, herbs need the same things that any other plant needs. You need to figure out what soil it likes, how much water it likes. With herbs, there are two types of soil category that the plants like. Some like very well-draining, almost dry soil. When you water it, it captures the water, and it wants the rest of it to move out of there fairly quickly. There are other herbs that really gravitate towards a moisture-retentive soil. That's the main factor. And then also, you can go back to where the plant originated. If it's a Mediterranean herb, of course, it's going to like more dry conditions and sunnier conditions. I see sometimes on a TV show where they just stick some herbs in a pot on the wall and call it a kitchen garden. And I'm thinking in my mind, how in the world are they going to be successful doing that? Do you have a clue on how to do that? Or is that really just a fallacy? They're not going to be successful doing that, are they? Not unless they have taken the time to research and making sure that container that they're putting it in has the same water and sun needs. Because if you put something like a rosemary along with a mint, first off, you never put a mint in a container with anything else because it's going to overtake it. Mint likes it more wet or moist, and the rosemary, it's strange It grows by the sea in the Mediterranean, and it's used to getting most of its water from having the spray from the ocean come up on it. It likes the water from the top, whereas other plants are going to like bottom watering. A rosemary is affected when you bring them indoors. Tell us about that. Yeah. If you decide to bring your rosemary indoors, and I wholeheartedly agree with doing that, then you will want to take a spray bottle and spray the needles every day as the soil is almost completely dry is the only time you will water it from the bottom. But you need to spray it every other day with a water bottle. Then let it dry out. Stick your finger in and make sure it's dry. Up to the second knuckle, not just the first knuckle. You need to stick your finger way down in the soil and make sure that the roots are all the way down or not wet, or you could have root rot with that. Growing outside, do you prefer growing in containers or do you prefer growing in the ground? 
it really doesn't matter. With my background in vegetable gardening, I exclusively grow in containers. And also specifically for this garden, when we just moved a couple of years ago, I found out the only sunny spot is in the front yard. Also in the front yard is the septic field. I can't dig or rototill or anything like that. So I have to use uh, container gardening. My biggest experience is in container gardening. I heard something new the other day that I'd never heard before, and that was talking about a herb spiral. Could you tell us what an herb spiral is? If you are a visual learner like I am, this might not be an acceptable thing for you. It is a round raised bed, and you're going to make it out of rocks, cement blocks, or bricks or something like that. It's not just a round container. It goes up vertically in a spiral. I think a, a better way to visualize that, if you're not driving right now, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a second and visualize that you are going to drive up a mountain. The roadway goes all the way around and starts going up into the sky. That's like the herb spiral. I hope that makes sense. If I were a bird and looking down on it, it'd be like a snail shell or a conch shell that spirals up. Exactly, with that vertical element to it. An herb spiral, if I can go into that a little bit more, you close your eyes if you're not driving, you're in your imaginary car, and you're going up this mountain. And the entrance to it is on the south side of the mountain. It's going to be bright and sunny, but as you start driving around that corner, you're going to run into the west. It's going to start off as partly sunny, and then you will experience different values of sun and shade. When you hit that north side of that mountain, it's going to be more in the shade, and that's really great because you have every microclimate, sun and shade that you can experience. You have to think and research on how exactly you're going to plant that spiral because it really does make a difference. If it really likes the sun, you're going to put it on the south side. If it likes more shade, you're going to put it on the north. And if it likes morning sun but afternoon shade, you're going to put it on the east. Or if it likes the hot sun of the afternoon, you're going to want to put it on the west. Not only is the sun exposure different, the water exposure is different. If you're going to put that rosemary on the top of that mountain, because when you water it, it is going to flow through. That will dry out like the rosemary likes. And farther on down the spiral is going to catch more water. So that's where you're going to put those types of herbs. You can also, halfway up the mountain, from the bottom to halfway up, maybe you're going to put that moisture-retentive soil in there. And then up higher, you're going to put the sandier, more well-draining soil. That's pretty clever. For every herb need, you've got it here, spiraling around this miniature mountain all the way to the top where it's drier and wetter at the bottom and you've got your different sun exposures on each side. So I like that. That's really clever. 
it is a great system. And about the average size of one is probably six feet wide in diameter. You can do it eight or 10. You can try a miniature one, maybe two to four feet, just in case you're just not 100% sure and you want to try different things initially. When I go to a garden center, I see these racks and racks of herbs. I, I want to try them all, but time and dollar budget just won't allow me to do that. How do I narrow down and choose the herbs that maybe be best for me? That's a good one. Number one, if you go to that store and racks and racks of herbs, you're lucky. We have a great garden center near us that has hundreds of herbs. But I go to most stores and like a lot of the big box stores and they might just have the parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. I'm not going to sing to you, but they usually just have those standards. My thing is don't buy an herb unless you like to eat and cook with it and like the taste of it. There is a certain thing in us that either makes us love or hate cilantro. To me, cilantro tastes like soap. I absolutely hate it. I love it. <laughs> but but I will grow it for someone. I like it in salsa, in Asian food, more than I like it in Latin food. So don't grow any herbs unless you like them. I would suggest you maybe buy a little bottle of the dry herb to see if you like that taste. In your book that we're going to talk about in a minute, you have a plant profiles in there. You did a very good job of making something that I perceive as complicated, very simple and easy to understand. What kind of information are you giving us there in that profile to make it easy for us? I have the plant profiles and I have the at-a-glance charts. They go together. The at-a-glance chart, let me cover that one first. It's just a spreadsheet. You've got the names of the herbs off to the left, and then across the top, you have things like the best way to grow it, the sun requirements, the water requirements, the soil that it likes, the pH levels, and everything in a column. So you just go across and down where it intersects. It's going to give you a lot of information. The profile goes a little farther in that it includes some of those things, but it's indoors and outdoor gardening. There might be a different way you grow it indoors. Maybe it needs grow lights. It might need more consistent watering or something like that. I also give a little bit about what pests and diseases you might expect when growing that kind of herb. When you're selecting a plant, you go to your profiles and you pick something, and they don't have it in the stores. Are seeds easily available? Or if I have a friend, can I take a cutting from them? How do you like to propagate? Walk us through those different ways that you acquire plants. You're going to have to research it because there are some things that they have seeds for in the store, in a catalog or online. I'm going to go to Rosemary. You can buy rosemary seeds, but it is horrible to try to get those things started. I suggest in the profiles, get a transplant or a cutting. If your friend has an established plant, that is absolutely the best way to go because if it's been grown in your area, if it works in their yard, it's going to work in your yard. Probably 
There are such things as microclimates that can affect it, but it should grow there. You should be able to see the health of the plant. If they've had it there for five years, it's going to be a sturdy plant for you once you get it established. But yeah, there are a ton of ways to do things. Just research and look up the plant profiles to see if it's easy to grow from seed or if a cutting or a transplant might be better. Are herbs easy to root? Ooh, some yes, some no. <laughs> Hate to be like that, but yeah, some are easy to root. You have to learn the difference between soft cuttings and hard cuttings too. I've had more success with soft cuttings. Soft cuttings, if you don't change the water frequently in your container and it starts getting mucky, you might experience root rot or something else like that, a bacterial thing. Hardwood cuttings. I don't know what I'm not doing right, but I have more of a problem with that. There are different ways to do it. Some will just go right into water and others, it's better to dip it in a rooting hormone and putting it into damp vermiculite or damp soil. It's harvest time. Could you share some practical tips for harvesting and processing for optimal results? Different ones have different requirements. If you're doing something like chives, you're just going to grab the top of that plant and you're going to chop it down to about one to two inches from the ground, and that's perfect. If you're doing something like basil, you don't want to take more than one-third of the plant at one time. You're going to let it rest for a couple of weeks and go out and do more. Others, like thyme, you're not going to use a lot of that in your cooking anyway. You're just going to snip a couple of stems and take that into the house. Uh, a lot of the times, I won't need, I don't need a lot of basil. I just want maybe a garnish. So I'll go and I'll snip off with my fingers. I'll take the top off that has maybe two or four leaves on it. And it's just absolutely beautiful. Processing your herbs, it's going to depend on what you want it for. Some things you're going to have to learn to cut it and maybe put it in a vase of water and maybe put a clear plastic bag over it and set it room temperature. That would be like your basil. That will keep it fresher longer. There are other things that the taste is more concentrated if you dehydrate it or dry it. That can be done a number of ways. You could just let it air dry, take a bunch of the herbs together, tie them together, or better yet, use a rubber band because when you're letting something air dry, the stems tend to shrink. And if you tie it with string and you haven't tied it tightly enough, you're going to walk outside and you're going to see them all on the ground. You can also put it on a very low oven. Each herb will take a different amount of time to dry. You can use a dehydrator, which is my preferred method. Then you can even use the microwave. But I tell you, I have had more burnt and crispy herbs from using a microwave because you do it in very small doses, a half a minute each time. But there seems to be a huge difference between something that takes a minute and something that takes a minute and a half that you might as well just light it on fire. What would be an example of one that you would well, Almost anything. You can tie that up into that bunch. Or there are these great net, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a round mesh container that has shelves on it. You zip 
open each shelf and put a different type of herb in each level. I really like that. It gets good airflow through it. The one thing you don't want to do when you're air drying it is to put it in the sunshine. It needs to be under cover and make sure it's not where the rain would fall on it. All herbs basically can be dried, but some will lose all of its flavor if you dry it. So some needs to be used fresh. Some can be dried. Is that information in your book? I do have some of that information, not everything, because, wow, I'm sure you're going to agree with me that you go onto the internet and you search how to process, let's say, oregano. Something is going to tell you A, B, C, D, and something else is going to tell you the complete opposite. So here's a hint. I tell everybody research. I try to use scholar.google.com. And that way you're getting more accurate information because it's usually a .org, which is an organization, or .edu, which is an educational site, a university or something like that. You're going to get better information from there than you would from just Google or whatever search engine you prefer. What about if we want to take that herb, we really enjoyed it, and we want to Grow it again next year, and so let's collect some seed from it. Do you have any recommendations on how to do that? My go-to when finding out how to correctly process a seed would be seedsavers.org. And I'll tell you why. Let's go back to vegetables. If you're going to collect seeds from a tomato, there's that gelatinous casing outside of it. There's a different way to process that. You almost have to squeeze the seeds in a cup and let it ferment. That's when the gelatinous stuff starts to break down and you're going to be able to rinse it off. You will be able to dry the seeds after that. On the other hand, like you open up a pepper and the seeds are nice and dry. There's no gelatinous coat. So all you have to do is let them dry a little bit more and then store them. With herbs, some of them have the flowers and then these little seed pods will develop. Some of them will have like a tassel on the top that will have fluffy downy stuff on that. You'd collect that whole tassel and put it in a paper bag. You can't see me, but think of your arm as the stem and think of your hand as a tassel. You would take that tassel and bend it over, put a small paper lunch bag over that seed head, tie that on there until everything starts to dry out. Then you tap it or shake it and you'll hear the seeds drop to the bag or you'll hear the the dried seeds that have naturally dropped in the bag. You're going to hear some rattling. So seedsaver.org and find out exactly how to process a certain herb. I do most of the cooking at my house. So does my (laughs) husband. (laughs) I open up the cabinet door and there's all these herbs there. So mama been there as long as we've been married, we've had those cans of herbs. So help me out here. Should I even keep those herbs or should I just chunk them 
this is not in the book, but I'm going to scare the daylights out of you and you're going to throw away all your old herbs. When you bring a bottled jarred herbs or canned herbs into your house, you're going to do something different with them than you've ever thought you needed to do. They tend to have bugs in them. And some of them, you don't see the bugs and other times you do see the bugs. When you bring store-bought herbs into your house, before you even open the can or the jar, put it in your freezer for two weeks. That's not going to make longevity any better, but it will kill the bugs that are in there. You don't normally have that problem with your home herbs. But when I am going to harvest herbs, I will take some, I will dehydrate them, and I will put them in the glass jars as normal. Some of them I will take and I will just put the whole stem or something in a little plastic zipper bag and throw it into the freezer just to keep it longer. Some of them I will take and I will chop the herbs up and I will put them into ice cube trays and you could either fill them with water or melted butter or let's say olive oil, a good oil. The ones with the water, when you're ready to make soup or stews, you're going to throw a couple of those ice cubes in there. If you want to saute, then I would choose the butter or the olive oil, depending on how much extra flavor you want in them. Is there an easy way to know what proportions to put in your ice cubes or in your oils? The herbs that you're going to put in the ice cube trays are fresh and not the dehydrated herb. It takes almost double the amount of fresh herb than it would if you were using dried herbs. I don't think you can really overdo it. Two or three herbs in that pot of soup or stew, and then guess what? You're going to take a spoon and you're going to taste it. If there's not enough, chuck in a couple more. I like that strategy. That's a technical term. Chuck it in. Chuck it in the pot. The flavor of the herbs, that's been maintained in the ice cubes or in the oil that you're using, right? Yeah. Anytime you put it in the freezer, you're maintaining it. You're stopping the aging process of it or slowing it down significantly. That's where your freshest taste is going to come from for the winter. My strategy is I start harvesting summer and then into the fall. I will use my fresh herbs first. I will use my bottled herbs second. And then if I want a fresher taste from the herb in the winter, I will go ahead and use those ice cubes. Let me ask you to reveal a special recipe to us that you like to use herbs in. Oh my goodness. Everybody thinks of pesto when you think of a recipe that is herb forward. That's the term that's used by chefs and bartenders. I have an herb forward cocktail. I have an herb forward soup or stew or whatever. My thing is, I don't do a lot of recipes for myself, but what I love to do is I love to make mixes based on a certain cuisine for a marinade for my meats or fish. I use a certain blend to do vinaigrette dressings or an herbed cheese ball. In the book, I have a section in there saying, if you're going to cook Latin American food, or if you're going to cook Mediterranean food, 
These are the traditional herbs and spices from that region. I've got Afro-Caribbean, Middle Eastern, Indian, things like that. I have two categories on my herb chart, herbs for global cuisines. There's something called fine herbs and robust herbs. If you're going to lightly cook something, then you're going to want to go with the fine herbs. Those are added more towards the end of the preparation. If I were to make a nice little egg dish like a quiche or something like that, some of the French herbs would be chervil, chives, parsley, saffron, and tarragon. If I were going to do a more meaty dish or a heartier dish or a soup or stew that has a French flavor, I would use more of those robust herbs, which are the ones that you're going to cook from the very beginning. Those are going to be bay leaf, garlic, marjoram, nutmeg, peppercorns, oregano, rosemary, sage, and thyme. You can do that by using this chart. You can do Mediterranean, Asian, Middle Eastern, African, Caribbean, Indian, and Latin meals. It's making me hungry. It's almost dinner time. You can start cooking after That's we're right. done. Now, are those what you call cooking bases? Yeah. At the spur of the moment, if I've got those cooking bases, I can create anything. I love to do marinades. I don't cook a lot with herbs, but I marinate my meat, shellfish, and fish in those marinades. Then you can use the similar flavor profiles or the similar herbs to make us a matching sauce with it. You also talk about salt and butter and oils. I absolutely love making herb oils. Herb oils are fabulous. Number one, you can have lavender infused oil, and I probably would use a lighter oil, not an olive oil. I would probably use something like coconut oil that has a sweet flavor that would be compatible with that lavender. I could use that as a base for making a nice ice cream topping. Then guess what? That lavender oil that has the coconut oil in it, I would turn around and I'd throw some sugar in it and I would use that for a facial scrub. Or I'd throw some salt in it and use that as a body scrub and it would still have that beautiful light scent of the lavender. It would be nourished by that oil. What herbs do you like? I've grown some basil. How would I use that? You could use it for that pesto. You could make it into an herb oil. If you don't have the basil in the ice cube form, you could use that basil oil and just throw a little swirl in the pan and then you could do your cooking there. You could put a little bit of that oil into sugar to make a unique frozen strawberry daiquiri. You could rim the margarita glass with that lime, and then you could tip it upside down and put it into that basil sugar or basil salt, and then use that for your margarita. Something like a strawberry margarita, especially. Basil and strawberry go great together. There's different kind of drinks that you can make with herbs. Could you give us a few examples of how creative we could be with those? Sure. So I think everybody is pretty familiar with a mojito, which is going to be a mint flavor in there. Also, 
A mint julep is something else we're very familiar with as far as an herb-forward cocktail. So let's see. I have a friend named Bella. Actually, she's the fiancé of a friend of mine, and she has come up with some very original herb-forward cocktails and mocktails. And let's see. She has what she calls a raspberry cake pot mocktail. That is fresh lime, a simple syrup using raspberries, and organic vanilla paste and soda water. So in this case, the herb or spice she was using is vanilla, which is something I cover in the book. We don't talk about growing it because that's a very special orchid that makes that vanilla but it shows that you can put something that we might consider very strange to put into a cocktail and use it that way. Or you can make something simpler like a fruit and sage gin and tonic. That's just gin and, and juice, some kind of a citrus like grapefruit, orange, lemon, or lime, pink peppercorns, which is a spice, and then fresh sage leaves, some tonic water, and ice. It's just that simple. It's a nice refreshing cocktail, or in this case, it was a mocktail if you want to take that gin out. It is just a beautiful, light, crisp drink and very refreshing. So a mocktail is mocking a cocktail. Is that where the mock comes from? Yeah, mocktail is a drink without alcohol in it. I got to tell you, the younger generation is coming up and they are more health conscious. They, a lot of times, are foregoing the alcohol. So the mocktail is very trendy right now. Also, dry January, a lot of people might imbibe, but in January, they decide to go alcohol-free. What about designs? What are they? It is another name for what we normally call an herbal tea. But it is not really a tea because it does not contain the Camellia sinensis. If it does not contain tea, then it really should be called a tisan, or we can call it an herbal tea. Obviously, that is going to be anything that you brew from either an herb or a spice. Probably the most common thing you're going to think of is a mint tea or a chamomile tea. Those in themselves are healthy and made to support and nourish the body. How can cultivating herbs contribute to the wellness and illness prevention? First off, a lot of what you're doing with the herbs is you can replace a lot of your salt and sodium by using good flavorful herbs instead of salt. So that's one way to help with things like blood pressure. Another thing is like with the tisans, you are probably going to replace a soda with that tisan. And of course, that is going to help nourish your body. It all depends on what herbs you're putting in there. Eating more herbs, like that pesto we were talking about. 
The pesto usually has a good fat, which is an olive oil. It has a ton of herbs in it. Primarily, you would be using basil. And then it also, a lot of the times, you would mix that in with nuts, which is also a good form of fat, very satiating and very super flavorful. What you're doing at that is the constituents that are inside the basil and the other ingredients are very supportive of health and wellness. What's a role of an herbalist? This is extremely important. And I forgot to mention at the very beginning of the interview, I'm not in the medical field. I am not an herbalist. What we're doing here is we're talking about things that will support your body. And this is why I'm not saying medicinal herbs. I'm saying culinary herbs and I'm saying health and I'm saying wellness. I'm not saying cure or anything like that. An herbalist is someone who has gone through training that knows the constituents that are inside that plant that serves the purpose of not curing, but improving your health or preventing something from happening. In the chapter, I think it's chapter 14, and it features a TikTok friend of mine who is an herbalist. She teaches in the book, she's going to teach you the constituents for the different herbs, what they can be used for. Then she also teaches people how to make the preparations, like a tincture, which is an alcohol-based concentrate of the herbs. She also teaches about something called an oxymel, which is fresh herbs infused in raw honey. There is a compress, which could be like making a concentrated tea out of the herbs and putting a cloth or gauze in that, wringing it out a little bit and sticking it on a cut on your arm. There are different preparations, like the compress would be super mild. The tincture is a concentrated form of something. I don't understand it. I'm not trained to do that. This is why I brought Michelle in. And I don't feel I can speak super well on it, but she shows you how to do that. Also, an herbalist also knows what herbs go together or what the correct herb is for the correct condition. Let's take a headache, for example. A headache is not just a headache. Somebody like Michelle or a good herbalist is going to ask you, where does it hurt? Does it feel better if you are active or does it feel better if you're laying down? Is it running across your forehead and would maybe putting a compress on top of that help? She will help you figure out the root cause of a problem. Just walking in and telling an herbalist, I have a headache. They're going to ask you a lot of questions. Do you feel a cough, for instance? Is it a dry cough? It is, is it a wet cough? Is it a productive cough? Is it painful? So does it involve your throat more? They'll ask you a list of questions. Just a doctor would ask for your symptoms. Instead of traditional medicines that just take care of a symptom, herbal medicine is going to go to the root cause and hopefully help to prevent something or to stop that 
problem from happening or to remedy it, let's say, we're not going to say cure, but to remedy that situation. So it is very complex. And like Michelle and other herbalists, they will consult, they will do a consultation with you. And that is the very best thing. Don't go off half-cocked. Dr. Google is not your friend when it comes to messing around with herbs. Good professional advice. The herbs can be dangerous then. Herbs can be dangerous. You're not going to go out and make a tea out of foxglove because poof, you're gone. Herbs are more than just for consuming. They make great crafting projects. Could you talk about one of your favorite projects? One of my favorite projects is a rosemary wreath. Sounds like rosemary is the go-to herb she, here. She is the go-to. <laughs> and smelling rosemary is also good for the brains. She does everything. I have a great story about the rosemary wreath that is in my book. I'm on TikTok. I follow another creator. Her name is Donna. She did a video of her trimming her rosemary. I don't have rosemary out in my yard yet. She had a huge box of rosemary. I would kill for those rosemary cuttings. She says, my husband and I love to take day trips. How about we come up and drop off this rosemary to you? She lives an hour and 45 minutes each way. That just warms my heart. I love that rosemary wreath. We can do things like wreath making. One of the DIY projects I have in my book is an herb or flower press. You can make that herb press and it's just a couple of pieces of plywood or thin wood and some bolts that you tighten up, some layers of absorbent paper that you can put between the layers of herbs or flowers. You can make these beautiful pressed flowers and herb leaves and branches. You can make things like a beautiful greeting card, a gorgeous 8 by 10 You stick a whole bunch of different herbs and flowers in a pleasing pattern. You have yourself instant artwork. Great for kids to do because... They can make these beautiful pictures or cards for their teachers or grandparents. They're just beautiful, but so simple. We've referred to your book multiple times during our talk. Let's introduce your book. It's Growing Herbs for Health, Wellness, Cooking, and Crafts. Would you tell us about your book? I would love to. A lot of the times you'll get either the health and wellness portion or you'll get the cooking part, or you'll get a craft book on herbs. Mine basically has all of that in it. So I'm very, very proud of it. It has you going from seed starting or transplant. I got a good section in there on how to take care of a root-bound plant. It would go well for either your herbs or any other root-bound plant. You go from there to planting it. You go then to caring for it. You go to make sure that you know a little bit about pests and diseases that might harm it. We go on to harvesting. We go on to more in-depth about processing the herbs. Then we go into using the herbs. I've got the herbalist in there, and she gives you more of the knowledge and science base for this than I do. I have collaborated with a lot of people. I have a compost guy who makes these great soils for me, and he has a woman who is a soil specialist. 
I've consulted with her and she's given us two types of recipes for soils. I have a commercial microgreen grower. Microgreen is like broccoli seeds and things like that, but you can also do it with herb seeds. I talked to this microgreen grower. I talked to a guy who helps people figure out what they need for a greenhouse. It's not just my voice in this book. It is a lot of really good expert voices. I talk about the cooking component. I do the crafting and I've got some great DIY. You were talking about cuttings earlier. I have a cute little stand. It holds four glass test tubes. Those are perfect for rooting cuttings. I got to tell you, I'm really proud of this book. It packs a lot into a little package. Yeah, you should be proud of it. I got an advanced copy of it and I was reviewing it, the layout and the pictures. You've taken what sometimes I think could be a complicated subject and you've simplified it where you can understand it. I was telling my wife about it and, and she was getting all fired up about it. I can't wait to get into it even more than what I have. It's almost like it's the Swiss army knife of herbs. It's just all there for you. And it's exciting to read it and to see all the things that you can do. So you should be proud of it. Thank you so much. I even have a section in there for beginners that tells what an annual plant is or a perennial plant. Because I have people sit there and say, oh, I did everything right. And my cilantro died. I said, cilantro only lasts a little bit. What you need to do is you need to start a plant. And then two weeks later, you need to start another plant. And two weeks later, so that you have a continued supply. I wanted to make sure that beginners could learn the basics of plants, planting, gardening. And they can use that for vegetables or even flowers. But I also had to make it so that Expert gardeners blow my mind. I never even heard of that. You did blow my mind several times. I haven't heard of that. I always like to learn something new. It was great. And you've got 51 different herbs and spices that you talk about in a very simple reference form. It's just so easy. And then there's 25 recipes and 18 crafts. Oh, yeah. If I could just do nothing else but herbs the rest of my life with this book. Thank you again. I appreciate that. Your book is going to be released in April. Tell us how we can get in line to get it. I love the way you put that. It is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. If you pre-order it, they're not going to charge you until it is actually shipped. So you can change your mind if you feel it's not for you. But I've got to tell you, pre-ordering it really helps an author get that book out on a good, solid footing. It is really beneficial, and I'd be honored if you would pre-order it. It will eventually be out on Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstores. Go to your local library and ask them to carry it because that gets it into more hands for people that can't afford it. You are going to benefit because you're going to learn to confidently grow your own food. Lack of confidence is what I think scares off more people from trying to garden. Most people, if you've done vegetable gardening or flower gardening, herb gardening is even easier than either of those two. You're going to get that. You're going to get that boost of confidence. You're going to get your hand held from beginning to end, from seed starting to seed collecting. 
and every stage in between. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? My biggest piece of advice for them is if they're a beginning gardener, start small. Start with maybe four or six herbs. Build your repertoire from there because you can always expand your garden quickly. But if you decide to grow 20 herbs all at once and you've never gardened before, we talk about different types of soil, different types of sun, and different needs for these plants. If you do that and things go wrong, you're going to become so discouraged. Oh, gardening's not for me. I can't do this. Give yourself a little grace and start slowly. What garden myth would you like to smash? I think the the biggest garden myth is that everything goes right for expert gardeners. It doesn't. You see these beautiful gardens online or in books. That's not what these people's gardens look like all the time. My encouragement or my question for everybody is, do you know the difference between a beginning gardener and an expert gardener? The answer to that is expert gardeners have killed more plants. (laughs) Yes. What's your earliest garden memory? I think I was about eight years old and living in Nevada. I remember my dad planting beautiful morning glories. I don't think there's anything prettier than that blue flower with that white center. In Nevada, we also have hummingbirds. So that was also the first time I'd seen how a plant could attract a beautiful creature like that hummingbird. Why did you decide to pursue garden writing as a profession? Sometimes I don't even feel like it's a profession. But in 2010, I became a square foot gardening certified instructor. If you've never heard of square foot gardening, it is a small space, raised bed, primarily vegetable and herb gardening method. The whole system was created back in 1976 by Mel Bartholomew, where he did the original method. He trained us with the thought of having us go out and acting as his ambassadors to teach other people how to grow and become more self-sufficient. When we graduate, he asks us to do 20% of your time helping your neighbors or your community or going around the world and, and teaching gardening. I think his pure heart to have the ability to feed yourself and things like that, bam, that just caught my attention and I've never gone back. That is why I love gardening and why I make it a profession to make sure that others can replicate what I do. Could you tell us a funny garden story? Oh, yeah. We're a military family. We were Air Force, and we were living on uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, which is an Army post. At that time, I was a volunteer mayor, which is a liaison between the command staff and the housing area residents. Another mayor said, hey, why don't we go ahead and approach the commander and see if he will let us have a community garden. I thought, that's great. Maybe I'll learn something because at that time, that was the late 80s, early 90s. I did not know how to garden because we moved around from place to place and never had any place to really garden. Although now I know you can do containers and you can do grow bags and things like that. We started this community garden I did a raised bed garden in the style of square foot gardening. That's where I originally found out about it. Things were going great. 
it's getting on to summertime and everything is looking beautiful. Plants are growing. Everybody's happy. Then we found unexploded ordnance and we had to abandon the garden. Did you dig one up? Yeah, somebody was digging and thank God she didn't poke that thing. We're all military spouses and so we knew what to do just to back off and let the military police handle it. Yeah. Were you on a firing range or something on this garden? (laughs) No, believe it or not, it was at the perimeter fence adjoining the high school. Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm glad we can laugh about it today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with all my fingers to laugh about it. Yeah. Yeah. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I'm going to have to say Mel Bartholomew from Squarefoot Gardening. His pure heart and his passion for people to make their lives better. I got to tell you, he's just absolutely fantastic. Mm. Is he still around? He passed in 2016, and his son and daughter-in-law and a publisher, they were working on the third edition of his all-new Square Foot Gardening book. They honored me by asking me to help finish that. Oh, wow. Terrific. When is that expected out? Oh, that's that was out in 2016, 2017, right after oh, that's he passed. the third edition was then? Yeah, third edition, right. As a matter of fact, Kevin Espiritu from Epic Gardening, he's in the process of writing the fourth edition. So I'm very happy. I know it's in great hands. What is your most valuable garden mistake? (laughs) I love the way you phrase that because mistakes are valuable. You can sometimes learn more from your mistakes than you can from your successes. I think my biggest mistake to date was when we moved to this new property. We pulled up, bright, sunshiny day, and the front yard, it's sunny and green, and I said, oh, this is awesome. I move here, and I realize that I'm surrounded on three sides by dense woods, and we can't even limb the trees up. If they're living, we can't even take the bottom limbs off of them to to improve it. It's protected land. What I learned from that is think about what your yard is going to look like at different times of the day in different seasons. Because right now, all the leaves are off the trees. I got sunshine galore in my front yard. When it leaves out, I've got more partial shade than I do full sun in this yard. I turned that mistake around to holding off starting my new garden just because I wanted to plant a garden. I sat here for nine months in my bedroom, looking every hour where's the sun. We moved in the fall. I went from fall all the way out until almost six, nine months studying that land. That's what you need to do. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? I think what I've recently learned really by writing the book is about the Latin names and the importance of them. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have peace. Tell us about your garden. Right now, I have two four-foot by eight-foot, two-foot-deep raised beds that I grow my vegetables and herbs in. I'm adding another one out in that sunny area. I have what will be my fourth raised bed, four-by-eight, up along the side of the house that does get a lot of sun. 
That's where I plant tomatoes and peppers and the things that need the sun. My garden at this stage is not spectacular, but I'm going to do it the smart way, not rush just to throw plants in there to have a garden. What did you learn from your garden last year that you plan on applying next year? One thing I did learn last year when I started those two raised beds down at the bottom, normally with square foot gardening, we do six inch deep raised beds. And I told you these are two feet deep. What I found out is you can mix two different gardening methods. At the bottom of those raised beds, I put in logs and sticks. That is a method called Hugelkultur or hill culture. I use that to fill the bottom part of my beds. Then you put the good soil on top. It does save you some money, but I was not prepared how quickly those logs would rot. What I learned is that I am going to have to put more good soil on the top of it, which is absolutely fine with me because you're putting your expenses out to a longer period of time. So that's what I've learned. Could you dig those logs out and just throw more logs in and then cover it up with your existing soil? I'm not even going to bother with that because the logs that are in there are just like at the perfect thing. Hugelkultur, after the first year, the rain and the water go down and they deteriorate the logs on purpose. That's what they're meant to do. But after you've got that in there, when the soil needs the water, it will draw it up because it's been collecting it like a sponge and then it releases it. So I'm not going to mess with it because it's been very successful. I've heard of those methods, but I have not ever applied them or studied it. I had a good traditional hugelkultur at my old house. At my old house, I had a demonstration bed. I had square foot gardening. I had hugelkultur. I had vertical gardening. I had a squash arch. I had a back to Eden garden. About the only thing I didn't do because we were going to move is like a straw bale garden. What plant are you in love with this week? Actually, I've been in love with this one for a few weeks now, golden dragon fruit. I'm really proud of that. I think it's called a pelora, P-E-L-O-R-A, a pelora, and it has a little bit larger seeds. I actually got this from an organic fruit in the grocery store. It's into its third year, so this year it should produce fruit for the first time. I'm in love with that. Since it's a member of the cactus family, I don't hug it to show it. I love it. Kim, tell us how people may connect with you. There's several ways, of course, on my website, which is SFG, like square foot gardening, SFG, the number four and the letter U.com. Email sfgkimroman at yahoo.com. And on several different social media platforms, you could do at Culinary Herbs for Wellness, at Your Indoor Food Garden, or at Square Foot Gardening for You. This has been Episode 146, Growing Herbs for Health, Wellness, Cooking, and Crafts with Kim Roman. Thank you, Kim. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Questing Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. 
Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.